Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. All right. We're going to uh, go back a step here, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Nehemiah. (laughs) Believe it or not, there is something that uh, we can get out of this that we have not yet. At least that is the goal uh, for tonight here. I'm going to ask you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And while you're doing that, Charles Finney uh, was a 19th century Presbyterian minister during the time of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, He came to be known as the father of modern revivalism. And he said this, A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Think about that. A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. What do you think of when you hear that word revival? For me personally, I'll tell you what I think of. I think of like a camp meeting style church, right? You've got the old sawdust trail. You've got some preacher with his Bible, and he's up and down the aisle stomping in his three-piece suit and, and yelling about heaven and hell, and you need to get shaved, and... Yeah, I, I think of that, right? Sweating in the humidity as we've been here for three hours. Like, that's what I think of when I think of revival. I think of people crying with re- conviction and being, like, really serious in the pew. You know, like the stereotypical Puritans from the 1600s. And I'm guessing that most of you probably have something along those lines in your mind when you think of the term Revival. But what if I told you that we have God's plan for revival in Scripture? And that it's actually in Nehemiah. What if I told you that we could start the most powerful revival open Bible has ever seen tonight? No special meetings, no visiting preachers. We're still looking for a pastor. But tonight we could start the most powerful revival we've ever had here. I believe that. Let's look in Nehemiah 8 and see what God has to say to us. Starting in verse 1, All the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought before the law, or brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, upon the first day of the seventh month. He read therein before the street that was before Uh, the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. All right, God's plan for revival, starting right off the bat here. First, you have to flood your day with the Bible. If you're taking notes, I have a few points. They're not orthodox uh, parallel uh, points that all start with the same letter, but first you have to flood your day with the Bible. What's happening here in this passage? Well, 
it seems like Ezra has been preaching and he has been preaching out of the law for a little while because the people are starting to take note. If you look in the book of Ezra, which remember is, was originally part of Nehemiah, they were the book of Ezra and Nehemiah together. They cover the same story. He's been preaching to the people and they start having questions. I mean, right, they've been in a land not their own for 70 years, uh, a little over that now, and they haven't had someone preaching the law to them. They haven't had the Bible being preached to them. So they're asking questions. And in fact, I'd say a lot of the people were probably born in captivity, so they might not have even been taught in the first place. They might not have even remembered the old school days when the prophets would come in and preach to the people. So a lot of it's new to them. And I have to say, I actually kind of want to commend these people for their interest, and also for the fact that they, when they had a question about the Bible, they went to the Bible nerd of their community, who was Ezra. That's, that's what he was. he was. He was the Bible nerd of the community. They didn't look it up on Google. They didn't start a little Facebook chat and say, all right, what does this verse mean to you? They went to a guy who had devoted his life to understanding the scriptures so he could internalize it and then share it with others. And they sought that out because they wanted the authority of God's word. And that's, this is a perfect example of what they did right, right? We pick on Israel all the time for the stuff they did wrong. This is something that they did right. And by the way, I'm not downplaying those other sort of, like if you have a Bible question, Google is a great resource. Like, it really is. And, and Bible study groups and all that are good, but make sure you're being a Berean. We'll put it that way, and you're studying the scriptures and making sure it's accurate. That goes for what I say, too. If I'm up here preaching, double-check what I'm saying, too. Don't take it for granted. So they do that. And all the people come to hear Ezra preach to them. And I think it's super cool that the Bible records it was men and women and all that could hear with understanding. That last bit means there were kids there, too. If they could hear with understanding, they were there. You know, sometimes I think you'll hear people talk about the Bible being outdated, like it was a male-dominated society, it was just for men, it puts down women. And it is true that the culture was male-dominated back then, 100%, more than it is today. But don't miss that the Bible transcends the culture it's in. Because while God used humans, he is the ultimate author, and he is not limited by the culture. The message of scripture was enough that the men and the women and all who could hear with understanding were able to come and hear and be changed by what Ezra was teaching them. And that's the story of the Bible all over, over and over again. It's God reaching out to people who have gotten overlooked, forgotten, discriminated against, any of those things. And in Ezra's mind, the Bible wasn't just for the, the husbands or the men in the family to know. It applies to each of us individually. But it also applies together. Husbands and wives need to be in agreement about how to live and lead a family according to the Bible, right? They need to know how to instruct children biblically. Men's groups, ladies' groups, children's classes, I think they're great. I am all for them. But there's also something to be said about just whole families sitting under the preaching of God's word. That's why I really love the family Sundays that we started doing here at Open Bible, where we say, yes, we've got a great kids' ministry, but today the kids are up here with us. Yes, sometimes it's a little more of a disruptive service. Yes, sometimes you have a kid crying or, or someone has to go use the bathroom or something, but there's something special about generations coming together and hearing God's word. It's really cool. 
And again, I'm all for LifePoint. I teach the LifePoint for 18 to 25-year-olds, so I, I believe in specific teaching too, but there's a balance. You can't just have one or the other. You need both. So how do you flood your day with the Bible? I think a lot of preachers would come up here and they would say, that means you need to have your devotions every single day. Amen? By the way, devotions is just a fancy word for Christians saying study your Bible. That's, just, that's all that means. There's something to be said for that, but I don't like that answer. Here's my reasoning why. Most people don't know what that means, what it looks like. If you tell them, have your daily devotions or read your Bible today, let's just be honest, most, most Christians, most of us in this room have never actually been taught how to study our Bibles, right? I mean, we figured it out over time more or less, but we weren't actually taught this. I'm sure anyone can read it, but I'm talking studying, not just glancing at it, but actually getting something out of it. So I think a lot of people, they tend to get frustrated when they open up the Bible and they say, this doesn't make sense to me. This sounds outdated. Where do I start? What in the world does this mean? And then maybe they just, they get fed up and they do start doing like a, a daily devotional, like a 30 seconds in the Bible kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not condemning that. That's not wrong. But if but I found that a lot of Christians get frustrated at plans like that, and they start they just give up. And then you start feeling like a bad Christian because you're not reading your Bible as much as you should. And when you feel like a bad Christian, you don't read your Bible. So you see, it starts this vicious cycle. You get tired, you get frustrated at reading your Bible, so you stop. You feel like a bad Christian for not doing it, so you don't do it again. And it just it, it keeps you going further and further along. The cycle just keeps going again worse. So what I propose is a return to what the Bible actually teaches as the method of Bible study. That is flooding your day with the Bible. Now don't stone me here, but do you realize that you will not find the term daily devotions in Scripture? You won't. You can try to prove me wrong, you can search cover to cover, you can pull up Google, now, the word devotion is in there, but in the sense of like being devoted to someone, like if I said I was devoted to my wife or something like that, that's the term devotion. But you won't find daily devotions like a schedule. What you will find is the idea of a discipline, of being in Scripture frequently, having it, having it where you're meditating on it. I like, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, who's the preacher? He's the evangelist. He had been at Emmanuel. He grew up here in New Jersey. Um, we've had him here a couple times. I just blanked on his name. No, I, this is horrible. I'm blanking on him. Rich Tozer. There we go. Um, we've had him here for a couple of services before. I love how he describes meditating. He says you need to m meditate. He talks about like you know, how a cow chews on the cud. That whole just chewing. We need to chew on scripture like that. Just keep reading and meditate and think on it. Draw it out. Uh, you ever, like, you, you watch a movie or maybe you read a book or, I don't know, went to some event, and you're talking about it afterward, right, with your, with your friends or whoever there was there with you, and you're like, oh, that was awesome, or ah, I didn't like this. or You're meditating on that. You're not watching the movie anymore. You left the event, but you're still talking about it. That's what meditating is. So as you're going through your day with scripture, that is what you do. You keep thinking on it through the day. You keep bringing it up and you keep considering it. 
If you were to ask a Jewish person, even today, what is the most important verse in Scripture, they would most likely point you to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. That's the Shema. We've talked about that uh, before. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Bind them by a sign upon thine head. They shall be of frontlets before thine eyes. You'll write them upon the, host, the posts of thy house and on thy gates. See, the Bible pattern isn't a proverb a day keeps the devil away. Now, if you read a proverb a day, nothing wrong with that. But get this, if they become boxes to check off, you're missing the point. If it's, well, yep, I read my Bible for the day, I did my daily devotion today, check. Okay, well, what was it about? I don't know, but I did it. Can I say something that, <laughs> it needs to be said. God isn't impressed with your scripture reading program. He's not. He doesn't look down from heaven and say, ooh, man, that person got 10 chapters in today. Man, I'm going to make sure they got a good day. <laughs> oh, but nope. Rich only got in two. Eh, nope, not a good day for him. That's not, I mean, that's, I know we wouldn't say that, but that's almost how we think, isn't it? You could read a chapter a day. You could read 20 chapters a day, never missing a day, walk away from it having gotten nothing out and not please God. I know we all think that God has to be happy because we picked up our Bibles today, but that's called Pharisaism. The biblical pattern is not forcing yourself to read Scripture because it's what you have to do. The biblical pattern is thinking about scripture all day long. When you wake up, you're in the Bible. Maybe that is your Bible reading plan, or maybe you have a, a version devotional, or, or, or whatever it is you do. Then you're thinking about it on the car, in the car as you're driving to work. How can you do that? Well, maybe by listening to a sermon or a podcast, or by praying while you're stuck in traffic instead of complaining about all the people that are there with you. Then you're supposed to start thinking about while you're at work. Maybe by going over a memory verse or something you learned from that podcast you were just listening to, or uh, made by writing out a memory verse, sticking it to your workstation and mulling it over as you're thinking through the day, or putting it on your mirror as you're doing your makeup in the morning, or whatever it might be. You see, you're supposed to be thinking on it when you're home alone, when you're with your kids, when you're eating dinner, when you're going to bed. That is the Bible pattern of devotions, as we would call it. That is the Bible pattern for studying scripture. And that's actually the beautiful part, because it frees you from being bored by the Bible. I tell people all the time, the Bible ain't boring, kids. We just preach it that way, and that should be a crime. You know, I used to tell Christians, and I, I am ashamed of this, because I spent six years preaching to the kids here at, at Open Bible, and I feel badly now, but I remember, I used to teach them, you need to sit down, you need to open up your Bible for the day, and the longer you do it, for the better. And again, it's not bad to sit down and read your Bible. Please don't get that out of this. But what I came to realize is not everybody learns the same way. Some of you can get up at 5 in the morning, crack open your hardcover 1611 King James and read out of it and get something and praise God. 
Some of you are struggling to get out of bed in time for work in the morning. Some of you just don't learn through reading as well. I had to learn that's not the only way to learn. <laughs> Some of us do really well with those through the Bible in a year schedules. And if that is what works for you, please don't stop doing that. But if you are one of those people that gets frustrated at that sort of thing, realize that you live in a day and age that, where you are limited only by your own creativity. There are apps that read the Bible to you. There are apps that dramatize the Bible with sound effects. In fact, I even know of one where they went to Israel and recorded sound effects to go along with the story. There, there are videos explaining books of the Bible, topics of the Bible. There are daily devotional videos on YouTube, on social media. Um, there are books, there are ebooks, there are podcasts. There, you are only as limited as you are willing to be creative. Some of my best days of studying the Bible came without ever cracking open a physical book. But the key was that something from the Bible was always in my mind. Whether it was a podcast, an ebook, an audiobook, uh, uh, even a, a song, a Christian song. Let me ask you do you think God is happier? If you get up at five in the morning and you're falling asleep while reading scripture and you get nothing out of it, but you did it. Or is he happier if you take time later in the day and you're awake and you listen to a podcast of someone explaining a passage and you get something out of it? I think he cares less about the method and more about the message. I think it's important that we don't become, how, how is it worded? I just heard a book recently that explained this so well because it spoke to my own tendencies. You need to be consistent without being rigid. I have a tendency to be rigid. I like things to be in a very strict, particular way. But when you do that, you miss out on grace. And you miss out on when sometimes the circumstances call for something different. Sometimes there are exceptions to the rule. You can be consistent and have an exception to a rule, but you can't be rigid and allow an exception. So don't be rigid with your Bible reading. Be consistent. Make sense on that? All right. And then let's... There's so much from this passage I have to go through. All right. From our first, flood your day with scripture. Then let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 10. The people hear the message from Ezra, and they say, what are we supposed to do about it? Look at verses 9 to 10. Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, that was a Persian word for governor. They're saying he is the guy who's in charge of Israel at this time. Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Remember at the start where I said God's plan for revival might surprise you a little bit? Well, here's the crux of it. The people responded to the law the way I think I would have, by feeling really somber 
and sorry and, and realizing that they've done so much wrong and just burdened down by that. I think that's kind of our natural response, right? We, we feel like we have to approach God with a seriousness, almost a shame. But what do Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites say God wants the people to do? Look again in verse 9. Stop mourning. Don't cry. Go back home. Throw a party. Invite over the people that you know don't have enough resources to throw their own party. And go enjoy yourselves. That is God's plan for revival. We could boil it down to a few points. So here you go, rapid fire, the rest of the points for this. Number two, recognize your sin. Number one, flood your day with scripture. Number two, recognize your sin. Number three, don't focus on the past. Don't focus on the past. Number four, find comfort in God's opinion of you. Find comfort in God's opinion of you. And five, share that joy with others. Share that joy with others. All right, you confused yet? <laughs> All right, let me explain really fast. The rest of this chapter shows that in Ezra's preaching, he had reached Leviticus 23, which is absolutely our favorite passage, right? Uh, it's probably one of a couple parallel passages, but it's probably Leviticus 23. That chapter established a feast for the Jewish people known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, at least in my mind, when someone mentions an Old Testament feast in a sermon, my brain clicks off and I go, okay, I have no clue what you're talking about. But there were a lot of them, right? They get confusing, but this one is actually super easy to understand, and it's really important to the story. So the idea was that at the start of our month of October, the Jews would go to the Mount of Olives, which was outside of Jerusalem, and they would gather as much spare wood as they could find. Then they would build makeshift lean-tos alongside their houses, and they'd take a, re a week to relax under them. They just rested. It was a week-long Sabbath. Kind of cool, right? <laughs> I wish we had that holiday in America. But what's the point of it? The point was that by relaxing and not working, they were reminding themselves that God was the one in control of their lives. The fancy theology word is sovereignty. But in simple terms, we can get so caught up in the busyness of our daily lives, in the world around us, that we think the world will stop if we do. But by forcing themselves to rest, the Jews were able to see that God kept the world spinning while they were resting. The fields could wait a week. The shop could wait a week. God was in control. He could handle it. He could provide. And he always did. The focus was on God's generosity toward them. He cares so much about humanity that he provides over and above what we could ever need. And yes, we live in a sin-sick world that grapples with shortages, supply shortages, right? And famine and drought and poverty. But our God richly provides. And we don't have to worry about whether or not he's going to provide for us. In fact, Jesus said this exact same principle in the New Testament when he brought in the, the theology of why take thought for raiment. 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, they don't even spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, tomorrow it's cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all those things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek you first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. Morrow take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. God will provide for you. And you, 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 and you every single one of us in here. And because of that, you don't have to stay in that somber stage. You can rejoice. You can throw a party. You can enjoy life. God made life to be enjoyed and lived to the fullest. But while you enjoy it, include others in your celebration. Share his generosity with them. You can do this because of how God sees you. Look back in verse 10. Did you catch the very end of it? For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where that little phrase comes from that we see cross-stitched on pillows and put on signs and cracker barrel and stuff like that, right? This is where that verse comes from, such a popular quote in such an obscure little passage. And it probably doesn't mean quite what you think it does either. I normally come to this verse and I think of it as meaning, if you're right with God, you'll be happy and strong. Right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you're right with God, you'll be happy and strong. That's how my mind interprets it. But that's not what it means. The word for joy here is only used twice in the entire Bible. It has the idea of the good kind of pride or boasting. Like if you see your kid score the winning goal or something like that. You know, that kind of, that kind of pride or boasting. Like someone would have in a, a child or a grandchild. And strength doesn't mean physical strength like muscles. It literally means a mountain refuge. It's less about strength and more about protection. We have it as strength in our English Bibles because, well, if someone's protecting you, you assume they're strong enough to do so. So, you know, the thoughts are correlated there. But the point of the phrase is that the joy of the Lord is how he sees you. God looks on you with joy, with pride like a father would his child or a grandparent with their grandchild. He looks on you with pride. Right now, with all of your imperfections, God is looking at you, and he's joyful. You are then able to take confident refuge in that fact. You don't have to worry about what other people think about you. You don't have to worry about what that other person said on their social media post. You don't have to worry about your past. You don't have to be burdened down by it. You can rest in the stronghold of God's opinion of you. He is for you and not against you. And that is an encouraging message if I have ever heard one. That's God's plan for revival. When I first studied this out, I almost thought it was too good to be true. It feels so freeing. It, it feels so doable. Like I feel like I could walk out of these doors and I could do this. That's the point. I think you can start this revival in your life tonight. God has demystified revival for us. 
He's told you that you can have it every single day. You flood your day with the Bible. When you get convicted of something you need to do differently, you admit it. But you don't stay there. You don't focus on that. You run to the mountain stronghold of how God sees you. Forgiven, flawless, loved, and empowered. Then you go and you share that incredible message of joy with others by inviting them to partake in the goodness that God has provided above and beyond to you. You do that, and before long, you'll have started your own little revival in your own life, in your family, in open Bible, in your workplace, in your town, in South Jersey, in the Philly area, in America, even in the world. But it starts today with God's plan for revival for you. It starts today with nothing more than, as Charles Finney said, a new beginning of obedience to God. I invite you to start that now as we close out in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that even a book that was written thousands of years ago and that was for a specific people in a specific time, it still speaks volumes to us today. It shouts across the generations a message of hope, freedom, love, grace, and, and then also a challenge for us to not wallow where we are and also not to uh, be selfish in accepting your love, but then also to share it with others. So I pray that would be the case for Open Bible here tonight as we walk out of these doors, that we would reflect on your goodness to us, that we would flood our days with the truth of your word, that when we do wrong, we would stop and have the courage to admit it and make it right. You would give us the grace to realize we can move on and that we would then rest in your opinion of us and share that good news with others. I pray that would be the case of us this week, and we thank you for it. In your son's holy name, amen. Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.